by listening to the voices of those who are outside belonging, it's going to throw into sharp relief things about your social architecture that has been in operation that you don't notice, but that is real, that is creating different dynamics that people are living out of that you don't see. So it's going to be a revealing moment. It's bringing into the light things that had just been operating in the background, things that may be destructive. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast, everyone. I am your co-host, Ben Tapper, and I'm an associate for resource consulting here in our central office. And today I am joined by the incomparable Kelly Minaz, who's our associate director of evaluations here at the center. Kelly, it's great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be back. Uh, To be honest, I wasn't too sure about co-hosting again, but you and Matt make it a pretty irresistible project. It's an honor and a pleasure to be a part of it. Love to hear it. Thank you for coming back. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Seth Richardson, and we're going to be talking about things that white congregations who are engaging in racial justice work can learn from one another. And so as we think about that work, as we think about the things that white congregations are dealing with when they're trying to engage in racial equity or racial justice, what have you noticed in the work that you're doing, either as a consultant or an evaluator? Well, I do a lot of evaluation here at the center with congregations who have projects going on about racial equity. So there is already some kind of buy-in present in these white majority congregations, right? At least on a leadership level, they've agreed that this is the direction that they're going. But that doesn't mean that there are not other stories playing out in the congregation. Just because the official line is that this is where we're going, it doesn't always mean that everyone is fully on board. And I see congregations having a hard time striking a balance between doing this work that they've decided is essential to do and you know, ministering to people who are still in the congregation. Sometimes they choose to leave, but sometimes they choose to stay. And you have to figure out how to continue to live. Mm. as a congregation, as a body in this situation. And I think it's difficult for a lot of them. So I'd say that's one place where I really see this playing out. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely difficult for a lot of congregations. I had a pastor, their congregation has a grant with the center, and he emailed me in one of his grant reports saying that part of the trouble that they're encountering is that they've embarked on this project, which the congregation was behind, And now that they've gotten into it, they're encountering more and more resistance from folks in the congregation about what it actually means to do this racial justice, racial equity project. And when he sent the message, he was growing fatigued. He wasn't quite sure, A, where all this pushback was coming from because it wasn't there at the beginning or how exactly to navigate it. And so I know this is something that weighs on the hearts and minds of our congregational leaders. And none of these questions are easy things to wrestle with or manage. And it doesn't 
even necessarily have to be just in the field of racial equity work. Sometimes you have to have hard conversations about anything that you've agreed to do as a congregation. And you have to hear stories from people who are in your community and think, what the heck do I do with this? Mm. Or maybe you're going out looking for them and no one will give you their honest truth or they are distrustful of the reason that you're asking this question of them. They think that you're not going to be responsible with it. It's a big responsibility to figure out as a congregational leader how to lead folks in your community through a truth-telling exercise about their own stance, whatever's going on with them. It's a difficult art. Yeah. And then to take what you're hearing and move forward to the best of your ability without people feeling like they have to be cut off or they're being ignored or, you know, whatever. It's a hard balancing act that y'all have as congregational leaders. And we recognize that, which is why I think the conversation we're going to have later today is really vital at this point in time. And thinking about, you know, you said it's not just racial equity or racial justice reminded me of the times where I've heard stories of the contentious arguments that arise in congregations as a result of wanting to put a flag up or take a flag down or wanting to remove pews from a sanctuary. I mean, that might be up there in the list of like the Hall of Fame of church contention, pew removal. Uh, My God. So you're right. These difficulties come up in almost any topic. Sometimes they're more or less heightened, but I think the skills necessary to navigate them are probably kind of universal. And it's just like in a real family, right? You find yourself having these arguments and contentious disagreements about things that seem really petty and you wonder what's really going on here. Mm -hmm. What actually needs to be surfaced in our community and how do we do that? Because maybe it's not just about the pews. Yeah, because it's usually not the thing you're talking about. It's the things you're not saying, right, that you're actually trying to wrestle with just that everyone's not saying them. So it's hard to directly engage. I mean, some people do care very deeply about pews and I don't want to disparage them. But often if you look closely, there's something else going on. Yes, true. Pew lovers that are listening, please keep listening. (laughs) (laughs) With that said, I mean, I think it makes sense to jump into this conversation with Seth. He's got a lot of great information to share. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Seth Richardson. Welcome back, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here this morning. Kelly and I get to talk with the amazing Seth Richardson, who is the director of Gravity Congregational Transformation. Seth, it is great to have you on the podcast this morning. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. And Seth, can we take a moment before we jump into the rich information you have to share with us and just talk some about the specific work that you do both within and outside of Gravity Leadership? Yeah. So I'm an an Anglican priest. That's kind of like my baseline vocational identity. But what I do throughout the day also, in addition to that, is that I am the director of Gravity Congregational Transformation. And that's a part of a larger organization called Gravity Leadership. And Gravity Leadership trains, equips pastors to live and to lead in the center of God's love. And so they do coaching and workshops and produce other material. The way that I exist sort of inside that system is that part of what Gravity does sort of focuses on personal leadership transformation and the kinds of postures and paradigm shifts that help leaders 
live in the center and lead in the center of God's love and Jesus. So part of it is focused on the individual leader. And then the other part of the work is focused on congregational dynamics. So if you could think of it like, well, what's going on in me as a leader and how do I attend to that? (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. what's going on in my congregation and how do I attend to that? So I'm on the congregational side of things. Yeah. And so what I do is I partner with local congregations. And the main thing that I do is I help create custom research projects that digs into often hidden data that exists inside of congregational dynamics, help leaders draw those out through a custom research project, produce a report, all unto the end of helping leaders make transformative decisions, joining with how they're sensing that God is leading in ways that are grounded, not just in leaders' intuitions or big box ideas about what churches are supposed to look like, but actually grounded in qualitative, real data about what's happening in congregational life. Mm -hmm. So that's the quick 30,000 foot overview. Thank you for that overview. I think the listeners that are hearing you right now that love data and might be evaluators themselves, they're like licking their chops, they're excited. Those that are less data driven like myself, their eyes might be glazing over. So for those of you that that's happening, stay with (laughs) us. We got some juicy stuff to talk about. So in the spirit of digging in, Seth, you did a report that unpacked some information, data, I would say some truths, if you will, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. about both the challenges and opportunities that white leaders and white congregations might face when engaging with racial justice. Mm -hmm. So can you set the stage and kind of talk about that report and the things you want to pull out and highlight from it? Absolutely. And just really quick, if it helps you and your leaders who aren't necessarily data driven, really, when I say data, what I'm talking about is stories. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not so much like numbers, ones and zeros. That's not really me. Like what I'm talking about is stories and the way that stories actually shape lived realities in congregations. Some of those stories are explicit. Like we know that we're telling ourselves these stories, but a lot of those stories are implicit. Mm. They are beneath the waterline of awareness. And so that's what we're talking about is the kind of stories that actually live in our imaginations and shape the way that we think about ourselves, that we think about the world, and that we actually live. So that's what I'm up to. And that's what this particular work is about, is what kind of story was shaping the way that leaders, white leaders in a predominantly white congregation, are going about trying to work toward cultivating ethnic diversity and racial justice in their congregation. So one thing to say that would probably help set a little bit of context here is that this particular work, I'm often working directly with congregations. In this particular project, I was working with a denominational task force. And so there was a denominational task force whose job is to think about how do they equip the denomination for cultivating ethnic diversity and racial justice. And so they sort of reached out to me and contracted with them to help give them data, stories about what's going on denominationally. And so what I did in order to get to that was to sink deeply into one of the sort of mid-size, healthy congregations in this denomination. So I'm coming in with that question that the task force gave me. And so, yeah, that was the question is, what are leaders wrestling with? And this denomination is a predominantly white denomination that cares about, like it's self-conscious about wanting to cultivate ethnic diversity and racial justice, but it's still a predominantly white 
denomination. This is a predominantly white congregation. And so the particular question that we're focusing in on is what are mostly white leaders, what are they wrestling with? What are they experiencing? What are they struggling with as they try to cultivate ethnic diversity and racial justice in their predominantly white congregations? Now, I said a lot about sort of like the particular focus because that's important for the kind of work that I'm doing. And I think it's important for pastors when they try to evaluate these big questions in their congregations. So the more specific that we can get, the better and richer what we begin to see is going to be. Like when we're trying to answer like the biggest questions, it just like, you know, we get gummed up, we get stuck, feel paralyzed a lot. So the more particular we can get with the questions, the better. So that was the particular question that I came in asking. So there was a whole lot that went on. I produced a report. It's about a 10-page report, but I'm going to name kind of like the biggest picture observations of Mm -hmm. what came out of this process, which involved me entering into this congregation, doing a number of qualitative interviews. And that just means like I'm sitting down with people who are leaders in this congregation and we're having extended sort of not totally scripted, just like we're going where it needs to go kind of interviews about their experience I'm looking through sort of documentary data, which is just like any white papers or kind of like documents that the church has about its own projects and self-understanding. And then I'm working through that. And this is an Anglican congregation. That's important to know. An Anglican congregation, mid-size in a large metropolitan city in the South. So all that's pretty relevant because one of the things that I drew out in terms of just a summary statement is that this congregation they have a building that's intentionally embedded in an urban, ethnically diverse, and low-income neighborhood near the downtown area of this large metropolitan city. And yet, like even though they're embedded in this place, this is a predominantly white congregation, yet the vision and the practices that this church had, and their phrase was companioning others and contending for shalom. So basically like the vision and practices that this church had on paper for what it looked like to cultivate ethnic diversity and racial justice, that vision was largely remaining on the periphery of the congregation's core identity and sense of belonging. So I'll just stop there for just a second and say a little bit about congregational identity and belonging. Like whenever I work with a congregation and we're like really digging into the stories and the narratives that shape self-consciousness and shape how people are actually living and acting, even in ways that contradict and are different from like the way that you're supposed to be acting on paper. What I do is I'm looking for identity and belonging. Mm. So that's always what I'm trying to get access to, like the conversations that I have, the kind of quote unquote data or stories that I'm looking for are how do the things that people say the things that people do with their bodies, how do the constellation of those things, what does it say about how the congregation perceives itself, its own identity, and how does it structure what it means to belong to that community? Mm. And one of the interesting things that comes out in this work, this happens in most work that I do, and this was really important for this particular project, is if you want to know Because this is actually a really difficult question to answer. And people find this out personally, you know, like if you as a person, if you start to, for the first time, like really dig deep into like spiritual transformation, sometimes I went through this process, like I discovered that I don't actually know myself Mm. like as much as I thought that I did. 
right? Like I had stories that I told myself about who I was, <laughs> you know, but then when I actually look at like what I do when I'm not thinking about it, you know, it's like, oh, like this is, this is actually who I am. So if you want to know any communities, like what really constitutes identity and belonging, you pay attention to those who feel like they don't belong, mm-hmm. right? Because what that does, it does several different things. But one of the things that it does is it throws into sharp relief the core narratives, the core stories, especially the ones that are unspoken, that actually constitute what identity and belonging looks like. Okay, so sinking back in again. So what this meant for this particular congregation, for the leaders, again, we're focusing on the leaders' efforts here. What it meant that as they're trying to cultivate diversity and racial justice within this congregation, their work is characterized by navigating this gap, this gap between the prevailing identity of the congregation. So the one that was like the most heavy, the most central, the most common, and the marginal identity. That means the identity that really that the leaders hoped would be who they were, but actually wasn't who they were. It was on the margins. And so what their work was characterized by was trying to navigate this gap, even though they didn't think about it that way, right? That's not how they, like, they didn't say, hey, we're trying to navigate the gap between prevailing and marginal identities. So, okay, one more general statement, and then I'll just let this breathe for a second, because I know there's a lot going on here. So one of the core things that I saw as leaders navigated that gap is that all the leaders' efforts to cultivate ethnic diversity and justice, some of these efforts threatened white affluent social normativity. Okay. So again, this was a predominantly white congregation and at the core of their identity, not because they were trying to do anything bad, but just because this is how often like socialization works, right? At the center of sort of this identity was kind of a white affluent social normativity. And so anytime the leaders like really pressed in to like issues about racial justice and ethnic diversity, it sort of triggered the centrality Mm. (laughs) of that social, white, affluent social normativity. And so what it was doing was it was like, it was transgressing boundaries of identity and belonging that were held by some of the people who sort of held the most power and sway in the community in this white affluent core. So their efforts are sort of like, are threatening, you know, they're triggering. And again, like all this is, this is not necessarily happening like above the surface, like the iceberg. This isn't necessarily the iceberg above the water. This is like that stuff bubbling beneath the surface. That's more of like, you feel it. It comes out in passive aggressive ways, you know? So it was transgressing that. And here's the interesting thing, though. Here's what leaders started to do is they, they felt that. They knew that that was happening. They knew that their efforts to cultivate ethnic diversity and justice was like triggering, threatening sort of this core identity that was a white affluent core. And so what that caused them to do was to try to mitigate the effects of that triggering. Mm-hmm. So another way to say this is that what this meant, and this is all sort of like, you know, Like no one's trying to do this explicitly, but what this meant was that the leaders were calibrating the degree to which and the speed at which they were pushing for ethnic diversity and racial justice. They were calibrating it on the basis of the lowest common denominator 
of white affluent social identity. And so what that meant was for this congregation is that their aspiration to be this like diverse community in this downtown area, their aspiration remains aspirational, even though they've got a lot of like language and kind of like furniture in a sense, metaphorical furniture that like sort of gestures toward like where this downtown diverse church, like all that remains aspirational and the leaders continue to fight like in this wrestling with trying to do this balancing act of not like really upsetting too many people who were a part of that white affluent core. Okay, (laughs) that was a lot, (laughs) but that's sort of a big picture of what I found. So as the person who learned this information and memorialized it in a report, Mm -hmm. you're describing some difficult learnings, for example, about congregational leadership catering to the lowest common denominator of white affluent normativity. You then have to present Mm -hmm. it to them and reflect this reality back to them. And of course, in many congregations, they're not going to have an external person doing this work. These kinds of conversations may be assigned to or at the foot of someone who's embedded in this congregation. I'm wondering how you can deliver that message to congregational leadership in a way that they're able to hear and take useful action on, because sometimes you uncover difficult things. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Kelly. That's a great question. So personally, I just have to be wise about how I present the report. And a lot of that is sort of this dynamic that I'm always wrestling with about what's my relationship with these leaders? Like what relational capital do I have? to the best knowledge that I have, like what is their level of maturity and health? Do I perceive that they are the kinds of leaders who know how to receive hard news well? (laughs) I have a pretty like thick filter for who I end up working with. And that filter has a lot to do with whether or not I perceive that the leaders are the kinds of leaders who have the character who can bear news like this. (laughs) There's a whole lot of like, qualification that goes in before I deliver a report. And one of the things that I emphasize is that there's a couple things that become important. One is that what I'm about to articulate is not the thing that's most true about your community. It's not the only story that characterizes what your community is about. Your congregation is a complex, multifaceted thing. This is one piece of that story, but there are 10 other stories they were a part of that and a lot of good that still comes from that. <laughs> so I'm trying to frame it just, and this is like the basics of congregational studies is recognizing that like there are never pure stories. Like everything is always more complex, more diverse. Even when stuff's like really messed up, there's always these like, these bits of life that are like percolating and bubbling everywhere. And it's not on accident. So I emphasize that this is also a dialogical thing that I go through with the leaders of saying like, hey, I did my best to describe what I have seen and heard and noticed on the basis of the question that we agreed on. But I can own my own blind spots. In some ways, I can see things in the community that they can't see because they're so close to it. But I also say there are also things that I don't understand because I'm not as close to it. as you are. So, you know, I'm just trying to set up this dialogical process of saying, I'm submitting this to you and I want you to push back where it feels appropriate to push back. And then in some sense, we can continue to work on the report through the dialogue that we're having right now about what I saw. And so all of that 
you know, is what's happening with the leaders in this particular congregation. And to kudos to them is they're the kind of leaders who have the character to bear hard news. So, yeah. Is that kind of getting at your question, Kelly? Yeah, it is. And I'm interested in your statement about how you often end up in certain spaces because they're sort of self-selecting into this process, right? Congregations that you end up working with, there's some pre-work qualifying that happens. For many people listening to this podcast, they are themselves embedded in the congregation, and they might be interested in having or leading some of these difficult discussions, whether it's around racial justice and equity or something else Mm -hmm. that is a challenging conversation. What do you think are signs of readiness for these difficult conversations? You alluded to some things like knowing that congregational leaders are ready to hear difficult news, but how would you determine it in a congregational setting? There's multiple things that often are particular. It's hard to describe because they're sort of relational dynamics. But one of the biggest things that's a sign to me that a congregation is ready to do the work is that the leaders have some sense of awareness that the status quo isn't working and that something needs to change. So they're coming to me with a posture of like, we've been doing things a certain way and it's become clear to us that we can no longer do things the way that we have been doing them. And we're open to the fact that like something different needs to happen. Like sometimes this is just like a vague awareness that leaders have. And sometimes it's on the other side of a crisis of some kind or a failure of some kind. So that really is one of the main signals to me that leaders are ready to do the work. It's just this awareness of like what we have been doing. We can't keep doing it the same way. We don't just need someone to give us some good advice. We don't just need to kind of like make a couple of marginal adjustments, like something central needs to change. That kind of awareness is one of the biggest things I look for. So as you think about that idea that there's this awareness that something central needs to change, you know, that some of the things you described as happening in this particular congregation that was mid-sized and in the South are things that I have heard happen in congregations that I work with here in central Indiana. Mm-hmm. You know, in particular, the piece about noticing this gap that was coming up and whenever leaders would push for increased diversity or racial justice, there'd be a clapback or a pushback, if you mm-hmm. will, of right. this white culture. That feels pretty common, you know, not even just in mm-hmm. churches. And so for other leaders that might be experiencing that same thing, what advice or guidance did you offer to that congregation that you think might also be applicable for other congregations, regardless of size or location, that are wrestling with the gap that they're noticing between their aspirational culture and what is confronting them when they're trying to become more equitable? Yeah, that's a good question. In some sense, I try to do my best not to just give like advice. Sort of my posture is to produce the report and say like, here's what I'm looking at. Here is what I see. How does that make you feel? Hmm. How does that hit you? What's emerging in you as you're confronted with what I'm showing you here? And to be clear, this particular report, in terms of like things that are said that are hard to swallow, this was on the end of like harder to swallow kind of Hmm. like data and stories. It's not always as like punch you in the gut But the posture is like, okay, this is what we're looking at. Like, what is provoked in you? Like, what I'm trying to do is bring up into the conscious what has been sort of like hidden and subconscious and working in the background. The name for this that functions in other realms, this isn't just church work stuff, but this is often referred to as the hidden curriculum. 
the kind of things that are at work in your community that are creating the life of your community, but it's hidden. Like it's not formal and official. That sounds a lot more fun than I think it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the question is like, yeah, what is provoked in you when you're confronted with this? And then moving from like, what are you noticing about yourself? What other things, what other points of illumination are coming for you as you're confronted with this material? And then beginning the process of saying, even in the midst of this hard stuff, like we actually believe that God's spirit is at work generating newness out ahead of you. And then there's an opportunity to join God's spirit, even in the hard news. What are you beginning to sense about how God's spirit is inviting you to take, not to fix the problem. This is part of like what we do here. We don't try to like, like, well, here's the big problem and here's a grand solution. Like what we're trying to do is notice reality to name reality as it is. Like even if it's difficult, it's not always as difficult, but like to name reality and then to say, how is the spirit inviting you as leaders to take the next measurable step deeper into the spirit's work? And I often am drawing from a process called appreciative inquiry to do that work. And basically that's a change management strategy that in short is just focused on not fixing problems with big solutions, but rather looking for where life is already being generated. Because even in the hard and bad stuff, like life is being generated. (laughs) God's spirit is generating new life. And then how do you orient to the best of your ability, either your personal or corporate structural life to move toward where life is being generated? And so for this particular community, one of the big like revealing questions was just this simple question of where are the African-American families? Where are the Black families? There were a handful of Black families in that community. And what this report made clear is that if the leaders wanted to understand the dynamics that were keeping them from like really moving that marginal, that aspirational vision for having ethnic diversity and racial justice to the core of their identity, they were going to have to really listen to the stories of those families that were there, talk to them about why they were there. Why are they sticking around? What are they hearing from their friends who are visiting with them and are not coming back? And so, yeah, I mean, part of what it looked like for them was like really tending to that question and listening to them and learning to change the way that they calibrate how they're doing the work. Because again, this was a big piece. It's like they were trying to calibrate the kind of work and the speed of work on the basis of not upsetting too much that core white affluent identity. Yeah. But how do you calibrate it? Not on the basis of that, but more on the basis of like what these other families who are on the margins are telling you. And so all of that is framed as like God's working here, generating new life. How do you tend to it? How do you take a practical step organizationally in that direction? I mean, I love that last question. I've loved literally every question like the last 10 minutes because I think they're all so powerful and rich, life-giving even. Mm -hmm. And as you were describing like one step that congregation was able to take or needed to take, by reaching out to the black families that were there and just asking some questions about their experience. I heard you kind of circling back to one of the very first points you made in this conversation, which was if you really want to understand belonging and inclusion, you have to talk with and engage with those that don't feel like they belong, at least not fully. That's right. And so I just heard that, like you're connecting back to that central point in tenant. Yeah, because maybe one of the more obvious things about that is that like, 
that's just actually the Christian thing to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like this is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 about honoring the members who don't often receive the most honor. Like this is our body politic mm-hmm. is that the members who socially often get less honor in our community, we give greater honor. So on the one hand, this is just like the right thing to do. The Christian thing, the Jesus-centered thing to do is to tend to the voices of those who often don't have a voice. But in addition to that, this is also an evaluative strategy because when you talk to those who are outside belonging, not only do you learn about their experience, not only do you honor their experience, but you're going to learn something about especially if the dynamics are like this, where you've got white leaders leading a predominantly white congregation. By listening to the voices of those who are outside belonging, it's going to throw into sharp relief things about your social architecture that has been in operation that you don't notice, but that is real, that is creating different dynamics that people are living out of that you don't see. So it's going to be a revealing moment It's bringing into the light things that had just been operating in the background, things that may be destructive. They aren't always, but like they may be things that are actually like really prohibitive and destructive and unhealthy. And so by tending to the voices of the outsiders, it's going to throw into sharp relief. You know, I mean, this is as practical as like when they walk into a room, they're going to feel things and notice things and things are going to stand out to them that are way off that just seem normal to me. And so as a leader, I need to know what things seem normal and natural to me, but are actually structures of domination and destruction. (laughs) I need to go through that process. So yeah, that's part of the work that that does. I want to ask a question about gathering stories in a way that honors the storytellers, because you do sometimes find in people you're seeking stories from, they've told that story before and their story was not listened to, or their story was not honored. And I'm curious for the person who's embedded in a congregation and thinking, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to be listening to stories of marginalized people around us or inside our community. What does it look like to gather a story in a way that honors the storyteller? Oh, that's a great question. The first thing that occurs to me is that if I were leading my own congregation and I were doing this in my own congregation, that I would want to do that in dialogue with those people, to let them just set all the standards and all the framework for what felt honoring to them. So yeah, basically for the posture to be like, I'm not even going to presuppose that like I am going to do this and I know the best way to do this, but to come to them and to say, what does it look like? Like what feels honoring to you? What feels safe to you? What feels... Like we're going to create space that doesn't just turn you into a token. Again, if I were doing this, I would say it would probably include like, how can we tie this also to actionable steps? You know, like I know that there are longstanding dynamics about having endless conversations and no action, right? So how do we do this in a way that's tied to practical steps? Like whatever I can do to let that other person, the person who is on the margins of the community set the standard for what that looks like in a way that actually feels like agency and empowerment and honoring and safety to them. I love that. love that. Seth, you've shared a lot of really rich information. So as we bring this conversation to a close, I'm wondering 
how people can follow your work or get in touch with you if they want to ask further questions or they're thinking about engaging with your work or the broader work of Gravity Leadership? Yeah, you can find me on the Twitter at Rev Seth Rich. You can email me at Seth at gravityleadership.com. And then if you go to the Gravity Leadership webpage, there is a tab for Gravity Congregational Transformation. And on that tab, there's actually a set of three videos that we have on there where I describe how this process works in detail if a leader wants this to happen in their congregation. I sort of dig deeper into the like the mechanics of what it looks like if they say yes. And there's also a tab on the web page that talks about workshops. So this process, by the way, like when I do the full report, it's about a month-long process. So it's pretty intensive. I know that sounds like a lot, but that's actually really fast. Gravity offers a handful of workshops. I do one of those workshops, which is called Discerning Your Context. And what I do is a weekend workshop where what we're talking about are the postures and the practices and the tools that help pastors see their congregation more in terms of like the social dynamics, helping them discern not just what's going on in their own life, but actually what's going on. So I'm sort of giving away some of these methods and tools to pastors so that they can think about their congregations well. So there you go. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today and for unpacking some of these things. As I said, I think congregations all across the country will benefit from these insights because, you know, Many congregations are wrestling with some of these things now. Yeah. The things you kept bringing us back to are universal truths, I think, and very important. So uh, thank you for your time this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So Kelly, we just finished a really rich conversation with Seth Richardson of Gravity Leadership. And I'm wondering, as an evaluator, what is standing out to you? Well, I loved that for a few reasons, one of which is evaluators don't often encounter each other out in the wild. And so it's really interesting to hear other people's experience of asking questions. And I thought he had a lot of good advice for evaluators and non-evaluators alike when it comes to asking questions. I think the emphasis on focusing on people whose belonging is marginalized and highlighting those stories is such an interesting approach. Mm. I think often when we're gathering those kinds of stories, we tend to hold the 90% majority opinion and the 10% minority opinion on sort of equal footing, but to really cast our attention on that 10% and say, what does it tell us about the whole system? is an approach that a lot of people would benefit from when it comes to gathering stories and asking questions. Mm, Absolutely. As I mentioned to Seth, I really appreciated the life-giving nature of the questions that he was asking and the fact that he kept reminding us that even in the hard and bad stuff, life is being generated. I loved that reminder because I lose sight of it. I forget it. And so it was cool to hear someone who, who does this professionally keep speaking to that. And I'm wondering if you find yourself doing that as an evaluator or how that resonated with you. It's always difficult to deliver hard messages. And there's no point really in any of the exercise if you're going to 
dishonor the people who shared their stories with you by watering them down so they're more palatable by, you know, for the audience that you're communicating with. And so I think remembering to let the truth breathe and let the truth be present, but in a way that affirms the whole life of the system and the whole life of the congregation is really important. It'll probably look a bit different in every setting, but just bearing it in mind that in story gathering, your objective is not always just to deliver the cold, hard facts. It's to place it in the context of that whole system and what is life-giving about that system. Because, of course, we're talking about the congregational setting. So it's important not to forget our theology in this. Often we forget that the congregation, mm-hmm. it is an institution, but it's not just an institution like the school or the IRS, right? There's something else that's really spiritually present and alive, hopefully in a congregational setting. And when he said his advice was to notice reality, name reality, and ask, how is the Spirit inviting you to take the next step in the Spirit's work? That's such an important Mm. reminder for people who are trying to ask these difficult questions and have these hard conversations in a congregational setting. It's very easy to forget in the course of trying to do this work and do it with integrity and listen well that there's something that we can't see at play. Mm -hmm. In fact, maybe the most important things at play are the things that we can't see. I know that that's easy for me to lose sight of too. So thank you for reminding us of that. I walked away from the conversation feeling enriched and encouraged. There are congregations all across the state that are wrestling with some of these questions. Like, how do we do this work? And the things that Seth named are some of the things they're wrestling with. And so to know, not even just that there's like a prescribed way forward, but to know that there can still be life, to know that none of these congregations are wrestling with Things that are even all that unique is a helpful reminder because they're not alone. And to know that there are additional questions you can ask to kind of slowly find your way forward or to find where the spirit is moving, to find where those invisible things are at work. I mean, he listed off like six or seven questions easily that I think any of which would be really generative for someone, for any leadership team wrestling with some of this stuff. And so I found all that so, I don't know, just cool and fruitful and again, just encouraging. Mm -hmm. And I hope that congregations will not wait until they're ready to ask all six or seven questions to start asking maybe one or two. But that can happen sometimes, right? We want to honor this process. We want to have this difficult conversation well. So we think we have to be at 100% readiness. We have to do it comprehensively. But it's better to ask one or two questions well than to try to answer all six or seven. Absolutely. Well said. So in that spirit of doing things well, we like to make sure that we're resourcing folks throughout these episodes. And so, Kelly, I'm wondering if you had a resource or two that you think fits with the theme that we're talking about today that you want to point people towards. I do. A resource that I encountered recently that I think would be really useful for a congregation who is interested in having the kind of conversation that we talked about today is from Racial Equity Tools. They have a lot of good resources about evaluation, some of them really catered to evaluators and some of them more practical for folks who might be embedded in a congregation. One called How Can We Assess Our Community and What Are the Initial Steps and Considerations for Doing Racial Equity Work? It's a short article that just gives some really fundamental steps for how to prepare to ask these kinds of questions in your congregation. It suggests doing a good 
analysis of who's going to be involved in the assessment, how to develop a racial equity story, how to scale it correctly, right? How to figure out which one or two questions you want to ask and maybe not focus on six or seven. And then what you should do with the information as you're gathering it. And then there are more resources linked for your moving into action phase. So it's really practical and it's geared toward congregations who specifically want to ask some challenging questions around racial equity. That is really practical and helpful. I know not everyone knows where to start in terms of finding the right questions to ask. And so that sounds like it can be a really helpful resource in learning to navigate that and to figure out what those questions need to be. So I'm glad that you brought that today. So the resource that I want to bring today is a training on anti-racism. And it's a training that many of you are probably familiar with. It's the Crossroads Anti-Racism Organization and Training. And the training is titled Dismantling Racism, Building Racial Justice Institutions. And I think this is a training you can access all over the country. You can register for the workshops. But if you are part of a congregational leadership team a lay leader, or you want to recommend this for your congregants, I think they do a good job of laying out the foundation of racism, particularly in the United States, talking through its longitudinal impacts across various systems, be the education, healthcare, housing, the criminal justice system, they kind of touch on the ways that it has infiltrated many aspects of our society. And so you can leave this training with a broader understanding of the push for racial justice and racial equity in the U.S. And I think it might help bring some of that common language and common understanding, again, to a leadership team or even to an entire congregation as you're trying to do this work and have these hard conversations. So once again, that's the Crossroads Anti-Racism Training, and we'll be sure to link that in the CRG and maybe even in the show notes. That's a good one. I know many people, even in our own ecology, have benefited from that training. And I've come on this podcast and said it before, and I'll say it again. Let's not forget that not all the good knowledge is written down, Mm. right? Sometimes we really benefit from being in a community of other learners and expert people. And sometimes we need to be pushed along a little bit by a program or by co-learners, by our peers. We can't get by on our own motivation alone. Thank you for that reminder. Uh, We all need it, and you're absolutely correct. All the best truth is not necessarily written down. I love that. So we appreciate y'all listening today, as always. If you like this podcast, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's the fastest way for new listeners to find this content and information. You can also follow the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram at the Center for Congregations. That's the easiest way to stay up to date on webinars, education events, and even podcast information or congregational stories. So check us out there. We'd be remiss if we didn't thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment for making this work possible and the skill set of our audio engineer, Jaden Lee, for keeping us sounding great week in and week out. And before we sign off... As always, we want to give a geographic shout out and the location that we're shouting out today is Seattle, Washington. And so to those of you that are listening and downloading this podcast in Seattle, Washington, thank you. We appreciate you. Feel free to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. Let us know you're listening and send us a fun fact about Seattle. We'll give you a shout out on the next episode if you do. So as always, thank you all for joining us. Kelly, thank you for joining me today. This is your second time co-hosting, I think, with me, and it's always a pleasure. So I'm glad to have you here with me today. It's a delight. I'll come back anytime. Ah, you might regret those words. (laughs) (laughs) But for the Center for Congregations, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Kelly Manaz. See y'all.